Ben's going to come preach. Kids can go off into their groups if they've not already gone. And there's going to be a reading from Serena. So reading from Ephesians 2, from verse 1, the whole, the whole thing. <laughs> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he, has, he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Great. Um, if you're here for the first time or you're new to church, you might have just thought to yourself already, even if you've kind of been around church for a while, 
what the heck was all that about? There's a lot of stuff in Ephesians in that passage that we just heard from, um, and I'm going to try and just in a few hours, um, expl- just not really, uh, in, a few, in a little bit of time, just to explain a little bit about what maybe that may be saying to us. Um, I'm going to pray. Is that okay? Let's <laughs> just pray. Father, I want to thank you for this church. Thank you for all those who are here this morning. And Lord, thank you that you see us and you know us. Lord, whether people have been here for the first time, whether they're new to church, whether they're not even sure who you are or what the heck's going on this morning, or whether they've been part of the family for a while, Lord, thank you that you know us and love us and you want to draw us deeper into an understanding of what it means to have Jesus in your life and what a transformation and what a hope, what a strength what a transformation of everything that means, as Paul's trying to explain in his letter to this baby church in Ephesus. Lord, help us on that journey this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. So if you are kind of new to church and uh, you're wondering, what is this? What's going on this morning? My name's Tim. So I'm, I'm vicar here uh, in Whitcomb. Uh, you might be sitting there thinking, he's not a vicar, is he? Well, I am. And yes, this is an Anglican church. We planted this church a few years ago. Um, and it's great to be able to welcome you. It's quite funny. We've got kind of all the young, good-looking, funky people this side. And then we've got all... And now we've got a lot of offended people on this side of the church. Um, <laughs> one of the things we want to be as church is, is very much family. Uh, and, and, and normally we don't segregate students like your kind of wild animals. You, we really want to be part of family. And, and uh, we have a couple of morning services and a couple of evening services. And morning services, well done for those of you that have actually got up. I mean, some of you students have never experienced an early morning. Well done. It's great to have you here. Um, we have an evening service twice a month as well where we kind of want to give even more space to ministry and worship. The heart of who we are is we're not an institution. We're not kind of trying to um, create a name for ourselves. We just want to be family. Church was supposed to be family. Church is supposed to be community. Church is supposed to be a place of welcome and embrace and a place of hope where Jesus, who Paul's writing about in the letter, Jesus comes and brings transformation. You know, we live in really complicated days, in very dark days. And the church isn't supposed to be a place of, of know-it-alls and goody-goodies and people who are kind of think they have all the answers. The church was always supposed to be a place where Jesus was seen and felt. And as we worship and as we look to him and experience him, then we can experience more of his power and his transformation. So that's what we want to share a little bit about this morning. We've been doing this uh, series starting in Ephesians. <clears throat> um, I and my family, my lovely wife and children, we had the amazing opportunity to go um, around Greece and Turkey this um, summer. And we, we went to Ephesus, which is here. So I've got um, about 140 um, holiday slides to show you. I haven't really. I've got a few. Um, because I was blown away by Ephesus, this place where you can read about in the Bible. And if, if any of you have read the book of Ephesians, you know, it's maybe familiar to some of us. But when you go to somewhere and you see the places that are written about and you walk the same streets <clears throat> and you see where this early church began. Um, I started the series last week. If you haven't listened to it, try go on the website and listen. I talked about Ephesus. Ephesus was a, an incredible center of uh, pagan worship and idolatry uh, and worship of the emperor, Roman kind of emperor. It had the biggest temple to Artemis, Diana, which was a, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's enormous, twice as big as the Parthenon. This incredible place of worship. <clears throat> it was absolutely filthy rich 
It was on one of the main trade routes. It was one of the key cities on the Roman Empire. Money flooded into the city. There was wealth. There was tourism. There were people who came to kind of see the culture, see these incredible buildings that were there. And, um, you know, in many ways, it wasn't dissimilar to Bath. It was a tourist center. It was a center of money and relaxation. And people came, as I, you know, I said last week, people come to Bath to worship at the Temple of Apple in Southgate and other places. Um, and kind of, but in these days, people went to all the many temples to worship and give their money. There was all sorts of crazy living temple prostitution. It was a wild place. And it was into this place that Paul, St. Paul the Apostle, arrived and started preaching the gospel. And he went into the arena. There's a picture of that later on we can look at. And he preached, and this fledgling church began to grow in the midst of this really complicated country kind of um, culture. Because remember, you know, the Christians were being massively persecuted at this time. They had fled, they were scattering, and as, as they were going, they were preaching the gospel and bringing their message of hope, their message of Jesus. I'm just going to read you, because there was so much in that passage that um, Serena read so beautifully, but there's just a few key verses, because where do you even start in this passage in Ephesians 2? Verse 4, 5 says, because, speaking of Jesus, because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Verse 12, 13, remember, now in Christ, now in Jesus, you who were once far away, far away from God, it's saying, have now been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. Verse 14, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace. Verse 18, for through him, through Jesus, we've got access to the Father. And then verse 22, in Jesus, in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I mean, there's loads of crazy thoughts in there. How can I be brought near to God? Isn't God this vague, floaty floaty force thing that sits on a cloud you know a mighty smiter who mightily smites people or who's not really interested in us you know or is distant or is a judge or is a this verse says no no we've been brought near you can actually know this father we've been made alive what you mean we were dead before well that's what Paul's talking about and we have peace man I don't know about you but we really need some peace right now not just globally but peace in our own hearts peace in our own circumstances these are all the things that Paul's kind of beginning to talk about here, and I haven't got time to talk about them all, but I hope I can give you a flavor of some of the things that he's saying. Several times in this passage, he says, remember, I don't know what your memory is like. Um, mine seems to be getting worse and worse, and petty things, I mean, my wife will tell you. Tuesday, I know, is bin day. I always know that Tuesday's bin day because it's always Tuesday, and Monday night, I should put the bins out, and Tuesday morning, I wake up and Sarah says, have you put the bins out? And I go, ha, ha, and I get up and I try to put some slippers on and I run out and trying to chase the binman down the road with our bins. It's, why do I forget? Or have you ever gone that, done that thing? And I'm mainly talking to you, Peter. Peter, who is um, the eldest congregation member anywhere, um, says, you know, I do this. You go into a room for something and then you can't remember why you've gone into the room. Is that just me that does that? You go in and think, just you and me, Peter. Or your wedding anniversary date. Those of you that are married. And people, I remember when I grew up, my mum used to say, tie a knotted handkerchief. Try a knot in your handkerchief. I don't know, people carry handkerchiefs. Anymore. But that, I can't remember why you would tie a knot, what you tie the knot in the handkerchief for. Our memory is something which is, perhaps as we get older or as we don't think about things often enough. I know you can train your memory, but memory is something which is often can be quite 
flaky, quite forgetful. And Paul's writing to the church and you need to remember these truths, not because they're just nice, but because they change your life. I shared this story a few years ago, but it's quite striking because all of us are capable of remembering the most obvious things, of forgetting the most obvious things. Michael Bressian was, um, was a new father. I remember when we had our first child, Ellie, uh, the joy and the celebration, and this chap um, was a, a new father, and the, the first um, Mother's Day he wanted to celebrate, but his wife was a nurse. So he decided to go in and, and celebrate with his wife in the hospital where she worked. Uh, so on that particular Sunday, he drove in with a load of um, balloons in the car and a cake and cards um, and flowers. And he drove in with his, with his child, his son, in the car, went into the, into the hospital. She was delighted, a bit embarrassed, but able to give the flowers and the balloons and the celebration. And they kind of were able to do that briefly. Um, and it was a really special first Mother's Day for her. But of course, she had to go back to work on the ward. So uh, then Michael sort of took uh, little baby Jason back to the car. It wasn't so much fun trying to push the balloons into the car, trying to get the flowers back into the car, putting them on the floor so they didn't get damaged, taking the card home so that it wasn't lost, taking the cake back so they could eat it later on. Got everything in the car and set off home. And on the way home, people started honking the horn at him, and he just assumed it's because he's got the balloons in the back, <laughs> and people can see it, some sort of celebration. He didn't realize what was going on until he got onto the dual carriageway and hit 55 and heard this loud scraping noise, looked in the rearview mirror, and saw the baby carrier with his son bouncing down the road behind the car. Because when he got in the car, he left the baby on the roof. We well, can imagine, can't you, heart stop moment, slammed the brake on, middle of the, car, middle of the road, abandons the car, runs back the 100 yards to the baby cot, which is upside down, heart in mouth. I mean, you can't imagine, for those of you that are parents, or not even parents, flipped, the baby cut over, and there's little Jason looking up at him, smiling, absolutely, miraculously, completely fine. What was really interesting, there was, a, there, was an interview, <laughs> there was an interview after it got onto the news, once everyone knew that the child was okay, and his wife, um, who was very sweet, Miriam, was interviewed by a reporter and said that she showed incredible grace and understanding. She said, it's so unlike him, he really is a good father. I mean, what a story, what a, just an awful thing to do. Um, now, I once did leave my roof on my, uh, my, my phone on the roof of my car in Somerset. I've left a watch on the roof of my car in France. I left 500 church service flyers on the roof of my car in Bristol. I just like to think of that as a new model of creative community distribution. Um, I left a bag on a bus, I've left a coat on a train, I even left my heart in San Francisco, but I have never yet, at this point, left one of my children on the roof of my car, which must mean I am a better father than Michael Bressian. Unfortunately, we can look at that lot, because it has a good ending, that story, we can laugh, it's a true story. But you know, the truth of us, the truth is there's enough of all of us, of Michael Bressian, all of us, to actually forget the things that are the most important. I mean, it seems unimaginable that you could forget your child and leave it on the roof of the car in all the busyness and the rush to get home. And yet we're human beings that have incredibly fallible hearts. And the truth is, we can forget the things that are most important because we cover them up with busyness or other things that console ourselves or other things that fill our lives. Forgetting the most precious, the most central, the most pivotal things that can affect everything. And that's what Paul's trying to say in this letter. He's trying to say, 
don't forget, those of you that have found Jesus, don't forget. You know, it's so easy when, for those of us that have been around church for many, many years, perhaps, to just get used to the, the miracle of the Christmas story of God himself coming to earth, of the wonder and unbelievable truth of the Easter story of that God who was born in a cot as a person, knowing that he was going to the cross as a young adult to give his life up, to pay the price for all of the mess in our lives. And we can forget the wonder of that and sometimes just get used to that. And Paul is saying to this church in Ephesus, which is under incredible pressure, listen, it's really important that you remember the truth of who Jesus is and the astounding truth of who you are in him and his power at work in you. He's desperate for the church to remember. So he says in verse 12, remember you who were, who were Gentiles. Gentiles meant those who were weren't Jews, those who were outside of kind of God's plan of salvation, who, those who didn't know anything about God, which is so much of the world today, those of you who were formerly that, who were all separated from God, remember that you were separate from, from God, you were excluded because of the mess in your lives, because of the shame, because of the guilt, because of the stuff the church, we call it sin, but sin is just the stuff that holds us back from God who's good, remember that that's where you were from. But remember that now, because of Jesus and in Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. It's like we were excluded. Our, our own choices meant that we were away from God. But because, what, because of what God has done, it's like he draws us close. There's a verse in the Bible that says that God draws us with these cords of loving kindness. It's like, you know, God created the world in all its perfection. And he created you and me for relationship with him, for friendship with God, to know this amazing creator. That's why I believe in every single person, there's something deep down that says there must be more than this. There's gotta be more than just being born, growing up, getting a job, maybe getting married, working really hard, and then retiring and spending the money and then dying. Is that it? Well, no. God intends so much more in this life and the life to come. But the stuff that gets in the way of that causes us to kind of step away from God, to almost forget that he's there, even though there's something within us that goes, well, there must be more than this. Maybe for some of you, it was certainly for me, I remember lying looking at the stars at night and thinking, there must be more than, than just this. There must be something behind all this. Or maybe you've been in a church service during the worship and you think, I can sense something here. Or you've spoken to some Christians or you grew up in a church environment and you felt like you, you connected with something bigger than yourself. And that's this deep cry. Kind of philosophers have called it the kind of God-shaped hole that we try and fill with all sorts of stuff to bring a sense of fulfillment, whether it's success or job or fame or relationships or sex or possessions. We try and fill it, but it still leaves us with this nagging I wish I had more, I wish there was more. And it's only God that can fill that God-shaped hole, Paul is saying. And at one time you were separated from that, from God. But when you know Jesus, it's like it fills the hole. It connects you back to the God who made you, who knows you, who loves you. And Paul is desperate to remind this little fledgling church to remember of the wonder of what Jesus has done, to sustain them through really difficult times that inevitably would come because of the challenges that were around Ephesus. Ephesus was not an easy place to live. You know, I think there's an identity crisis in our culture today. I think so many people are struggling to know who they are. Who am I? And psychologists will often, some people here studying psychology, psychologists will often say that, you know, one of the, 
keys to so many kind of crises for people is, is, is about self. It's about who they are. It's about their understanding of who they are. And as Paul is saying, if you really want to understand who you are, who you're meant to be, and all you can become, well, you need to understand who you are in Jesus. Because it's Jesus who brings a total sense of understanding of who you are and what you're called to. And Paul makes this really stark comment. Right at the beginning of Ephesians 2, I don't know if you noticed, he said, as for you, why you were dead. This is speaking about these, this new church, these Christians, these young Christians. He says, as for you, in the past, you were dead. And you might think, well, I'm not dead. I'm very much alive. I mean, I might be dying slightly in this long service, but I am still alive. And Paul says, no, no, not physically dead. It's like you were spiritually dead. You were dead in your emotions. You were dead spiritually. There was an emptiness and a void in you that can only be made alive, that can only be brought back to life when you encounter Jesus, Paul says. He says, you were dead, trapped in the brokenness of your lives, your empty living and in darkness, which is a darkness that Jesus longs to lift you from, to bring you hope and a sense of fulfillment. Fulfillment. Because the heart of the crisis for humanity is the crisis of the human heart. And Paul's saying, Jesus wants to rescue your heart. Those of you that have known Jesus for many years, Paul's saying, remember what he's rescued you from. Remember your chains that once held you. And remember your chains are gone. Because as you truly remember that, you begin to give thanks and have hope for your future, for the challenges that will come. Paul's saying this is the dilemma for the whole of human history, for humanity, for every man, woman, and child. It's the condition of those who don't yet know God, which we're kind of born into, the brokenness of the world. And you can't work your way out of it. You can't make yourself better. Christianity is not about being good. Christianity is not about earning karma. It's not about kind of being better than everyone else so that maybe one day when God looks at the scales, they go, well, you're more good than bad. Paul's saying, the truth is when you're dead, you're dead. You can't do anything to make yourself undead. There's only one that can do that. He says this in verse four, because there's real hope. When he gets to the beginning of the verse four, there's this most glorious moment with some f fantastic words. He says this, but God, it said, we were stead in our sins, but God, who's rich in mercy, out of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. I want to read that to you from the message translation, which is a kind of more modern translation. It says, says this. I'm going to read it from one to six. This is the message. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in all that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then it exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like, when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. 
He did all of this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Two words in that, both of those translations, mercy and grace. Mercy is a God of mercy. I don't know if you know God as a God of mercy. Mercy means that God doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace means that he does give us what we don't deserve. The Bible says while we were still sinners, while we were still kind of going our own way, making our own choices, Jesus came into the world and died, died on a cross. He was perfect. He never, it was unimaginable. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And he loved and he showed the true nature of this God of mercy and forgiveness and kindness. And he reached out to the kind of the lepers of the day, the literal lepers and the physical lepers. Jesus spoke to women at a time when no rabbi should have ever done that. He exalted them. He lifted them up. He put them in places of leadership at a time when everyone thought that was awful. You know, the prayer of the rabbis of the day was, Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile. Thank you for not making me a dog. Thank you for not making me a woman. I mean, it's unimaginable, isn't it? That's what the religious hypocrisy of the day had denigrated women to. And yet Jesus comes in and he sits and he loves and he cherishes and he honors and he promotes. He magnifies, he forgives. The lepers, those with unclean skin who were put outside of the community, who were made to go and live in other places, who no one could be near them. They couldn't go to the temple and worship. They couldn't be touched. They couldn't be loved. They couldn't be held. They couldn't go to parties. They couldn't be embraced. They couldn't eat with friends. Jesus went and ate with them and touched them and healed them. This is the Jesus who God sent into the world, not to set up some religious institution, but to show the way of love and healing and hope and then yield his life on a cross, even though he was innocent, so that he could bear the brokenness and the pain and the shame and the hurt that you and I all have within us. Jesus took it all on his body so that we don't have to. And then he gives like this perfect righteousness, the way that God looks at him, he's holy. And God says, when you're in Jesus, you can be, be holy, you can know God and could know God's friendship and love. Mercy means that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace means that he gives us what we don't deserve, love, embrace, and fellowship. We've been brought close when we're in Christ. So that's what Paul's urging the church. Remember, remember to whom you belong, Jesus, and remember what was done in him, in the cross, to win you that prize. And the last thing is this. He talks about peace. Peace is a massive deal, isn't it? I mean, globally, we long for peace. But actually the truth is in our own circumstances we often long for peace. Whether we feel shaken in our relationships, shaken in our studies, we feel unsettled by what's going on around us financially, emotionally. Jesus brings peace. Not just a superficial peace on the outside that we walk around like little fluffy, I'm a Christian and everything's glorious. It's not that sort of peace, it's the true inner peace that guards your heart and mind. And that would have been revolutionary in the day not only would it have been revolutionary it would have been bordering on treason because in the roman empire the peace bringer was caesar and the romans were the bringers of peace enforced peace through military conquest through dominance and when necessary through terror using crucifixion to bring peace that's what empire's peace meant suppression oppression everyone held kind of 
by arms. But then Paul writes to this little fledgling church in the midst of this Roman Empire and says, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. He is our peace. Not the government, not the emperor, not the soldiers, not the Romans, but Jesus. Jesus is the only true way of peace. True peace. Don't forget, says Paul, if you want peace, you need to yield your life to Jesus and find inner peace and lasting peace. And remember what cost it was won at, his crucifixion on the cross. Remember to the family that you now belong, because that's the amazing thing about the church. Church isn't about joining kind of like a golf club. It's about becoming part of a family. We have access to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we live in family and community together. So we have one another's backs. We stand together. We laugh together. We cry together. When, we, when, when circumstances are difficult, we hold one another and pray for one another, and we experience God's presence in those moments. So it's good news. Hebrews 4 tells us, Therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you and for me? Well, maybe if you don't know yet, you don't know Jesus yet, you're not used to church, maybe this is a whole new thought. Later in the year, heading towards Christmas, we're going to be having all our Christmas celebrations here, our carols by laser light madness that we have here. We have a great hysterical nativity where everybody dresses up in characters from the nativity story. It's wild. You know, we may even get a donkey again in here. Who knows what will happen? But the Christmas story isn't just about singing carols and feeling fluffy. It's about the miracle of God with skin on coming into our world. It's what Paul is trying to remind us about. And what does it mean for this God who came into the world that those of us who call ourselves Christians have accepted him as Lord? Well, what does it mean for me? It means I'm alive in Christ. I'm full of his life, full of his hope. I'm not the same person that I once was. I might not be what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I was. God is doing a wonder and a miracle in each of us, transforming us, making us more like him. I'm alive with Christ and I'm raised with him. God is my father. I'm his child. I'm an heir with Jesus. And I have this new power at my disposal. Ephesians, Paul saying, when Jesus died and came out of the grave, because you're in Jesus, those of you that have chosen to follow him, the same power that got Christ out of the grave is at work in you. That's why as a church, we don't just believe in reading the Bible and going, that's interesting. We believe in the word and the spirit. God's spirit is at work. We, we pray for healings. We've seen miracles. We've seen ridiculous miracles. We've got, seen God's supernatural provision. We've seen supernatural transformation of hearts and lives. We've seen because God is a God of power that's real today. His power is at my disposal because my life is in him. And because of that, we can find rest and peace. I don't have to strain. I don't have to earn anything because I can't earn anything. My life is in his hands. And he is good, the good, good father all the time. And together, we're being built together, it says in Ephesians 2. In him, you two are being built together to becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. There's so many things there. There's so many thoughts. There's so many things that we could talk about. But I want to pray for us, and we're just going to close with some worship. I'm going to invite the band to come back up, James and the guys. And we're just going to close uh, with some communion, which is kind of an expression of what it means to be in the family. We've got some bread and some wine. It's gluten-free bread. 
We have non-alcoholic wine if people want it as well. And just to say, there's nothing magical about these symbols. These are symbols that Jesus gave the church to help them remember what he did. We as a church, we, we love baptism. We have a big tank uh, that we fill with warm water, warmish water. Um, we love to, to baptize because it's a symbol. There's nothing magic about the water. It's not holy anointed water. It's actually Wessex water, which is quite good water. But it's a symbol that God gives us to help remind us of what it is to kind of die in Christ and to come out. If you've been thinking about baptism, I know some of you have, come and talk to us about it. We're going to have a baptism service soon. And just like God gives us water and oil as symbols in the Bible to help remind us of his presence, Jesus at the Last Supper took the symbols that were in front of him, bread and wine. And he met with people who didn't really understand everything that was going on. Maybe you're here today and you think, I don't really understand all of Tim's saying or anything that Tim's saying. That's quite possible as well. But I sense God here. I sense there's something in what he's saying about this God who longs to save, God who longs to remind me of his goodness. Jesus gave bread and wine to his disciples and he broke the bread and he said, you don't understand right now, but my body is going to be broken very soon in a few hours and I'm going to be put on the cross and my body is going to be broken like this bread is broken. And, and my blood is going to be shed like this wine is poured out. And I want you to receive this wine and I want you to receive this bread in remembrance, to remember. That's why some 2,000 years later, we're still remembering we're putting back together, remembering what happened all that time ago. Why? Not as a religious thing, but to help us to go, yes, this is what Jesus has done for me. I don't fully understand the cross and all it means to me, but I know I want to receive Jesus. And so this table is an invitation. All who know the Lord, whatever your church background, whatever churchmanship you're from, you're welcome to come and receive bread and wine. We're going to very simply in a moment break the bread and share the wine. I know we live in COVID days, so if you would rather not drink the wine from the cup, that's absolutely fine. You can just come and take some bread, and I'm going to be down here. I'm going to get one or two other people to come and stand with me. And if you're sitting this morning thinking, I really need to reconnect with Jesus. I need to remember. I need to be put back together in a fresh way. Today's a great day to do that, and communion is a great way for you to come and do that, and you can come and receive at the table. And we're going to do it just in the context of worship. The guys are going to lead us in some worship, and you can come up in your own time. If you'd like to talk to me, uh, or Libby, Libby will be around with me, then you can come and do that too. Because it may be that you think, I want to connect to this Jesus, but I don't know how. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And we've got some bits of literature that we can give to you. We can pray for you. Is that okay? What I'm going to do is, um, while James just starts tinkling or tuning his guitar maybe... Um, I'd like us all to bow our heads and close our eyes. It's nothing magic about that, but sometimes it just helps us to concentrate and it's much nicer than looking at my ugly face. So I want to pray for us. And you know, the really cool thing about God is he doesn't care whether you believe in him or not because he believes in you. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows the challenges you face. He knows maybe the questions you have or the confusion or maybe the fears. He certainly knows and understands the pressures you're, you might be under. He, he's aware of your regrets, perhaps, the times when you feel like you've let him down or you've not looked to him when you perhaps you should have done. And whether you're new in church or whether you've been around in church for many years, 
Jesus always reaches out with the Father's embrace and says, come, come to me all who are thirsty. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to know the Bible inside out. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. You just have to give your heart to him. You just have to yield to him. You have to look to him. And one cry that says, Jesus, are you there? You'll experience him saying, yes, I am. Come to me, child. Jesus, I want to thank you for the cross. I want to thank you, Jesus, that some 2,000 years ago, the father who looked at this broken world and who didn't want to give up on his creation came in his son, sent his son Jesus into this world, God with skin on, God amongst us, God to show the father's lavish love and mercy. He came to set the captives free, to proclaim good news, to speak peace and hope to a lost people. And not just for the days he came, he came for generations to come, for us today who worship him because of his mercy and grace. And some 30 years later, after being born in that stable on that hillside amongst all those witnesses, he was raised up on a cross after having been beaten and was crucified and laid in a tomb. Though he was innocent and done no wrong, he carried the brokenness and pain of generations, our shame, our guilt, our ego, our self-centeredness. And by his wounds, we are healed. And the story doesn't end there because three days later, he gloriously rose from the dead, was seen by over 400 people and ate with his friends and celebrated before returning to the Father. So we follow a God that doesn't have a tomb that we can visit with a body in. We, visit, we know a resurrected God. And there's a constant invitation to come to you. So Lord, I pray as we look to you this morning, would you stir our hearts, Jesus? I just wanna pray as we move into communion. If, while everyone's got their eyes closed and their head bowed, if, in your heart you think, I don't understand everything about this Jesus, but I would like to experience more of him. Or if you feel like you've perhaps turned away from Jesus a little bit, and this is an opportunity where you think, I wanna just turn back to Jesus. I wanna ask you to do something really brave. I want you to just look at me. I'm not gonna do anything else after that, but I just want you to just look at me now until I've seen you so that I know that you have, because I'd love to be able to pray for you. Brilliant. Is there anybody else? Fabulous. Thank you. Anyone else that wants to do that? Thank you. Brilliant. Well done. God sees your hearts. He knows who you are. He loves you. Thank you. Brilliant. Lord, I want to pray for all those hearts this morning, for those that kind of wanted to but maybe just in this moment, just struggle to. Lord, I want to pray particularly for those hearts and lives. Jesus, you love them. You welcome them. You call them back to the Father's embrace. And even that, just that little look, the Father says, I see you, son. I see you, daughter. Come to me and I'm come to you. And when you can't walk, I run to you and I hold you. Lord, for those who looked in their hearts but were struggling to, Lord, you see them and you love them and welcome them too.